Collaboration between different disciplines in your organization can be difficult, and finding clarity and alignment on the right problem to solve and the right solution design is even more so. We approach improvement from our own limited perspective. We can't take into account the whole story. How is that effective? Aha! Paul Rayner's Event Storming Facilitation Virtual Workshop is a multi-day online event. It promotes collaboration between different disciplines to solve business problems in the most effective way. This virtual workshop with Paul consists of four sessions on September 28th through October 1st, 2020, from 9 a.m. to noon in Central Time each day. To register and get 20% off your ticket, visit virtualgenius.com events. Use the code VGGTC. In this highly hands-on and interactive virtual workshop, you'll learn advanced event-storming facilitation skills from large business discovery to collaborative solution design at the team level. Also, Paul is great. That's my personal opinion. Once again, to get 20% off your ticket, visit virtualgenius.com events and use the code VGGTC. And welcome to episode 199 of Greater Than Code, a very exciting number, uh, in my opinion. I am one of your hosts, Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with fellow panelist, Opti Grimm. Hello, and I am here today with Jessica Kerr. And I am here today with our guest, Amy Newell. Amy Newell graduated summa cum laude from Harvard University with a degree in comparative religion and women's studies. Then she did postgraduate studies in computer science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's an engineering director at Wistia. And Amy has written about suicide, psych wards, adultery, and Brazilian bikini waxes. She manages software engineers and does stand-up comedy, reads tarot, advocates for the mentally ill, and parents two teenagers in a pandemic. Also... She has an amazing boot collection. She can identify your boots brand and probably year from across the room. And you can find her like with serious stuff on Twitter at Amy Newell. That's N-E-W-E-L-L. But the real stuff is on Instagram at Amy Wears Boots. Amy, thank you for coming today. Thank you for having me, Jess. That was quite an introduction. (laughs) Well, you sent us a lot of options. I know, because I just realized that I had all of these different ways of presenting myself. Like the first one you were reading was the one that I submitted to my kids, my eighth graders uh, school district so that I could get approved to homeschool, which was not on my plan for 2020, but is what I will be doing with the 13-year-olds this year in addition to all of the other stuff that I already have in my life. That'll be very exciting for some definition of exciting. Yeah, this is a year of developing skills we never really wanted to develop. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually really, I know you're about to ask me what my superpower (laughs) is, but I'm just, (laughs) so I will circle back to the superpower question. But what's really interesting is asking someone, what is something you know a lot about that you wish you didn't know anything about, Mm -hmm. right? So for me, it's like psychiatric meds. I would love to live in a world where I don't have to know like 
a ton about psych meds, but instead I live in a world where I have like a stall psychopharmacology prescriber's guide within like arm's reach because I have to think about those things. Anyway, do you want to ask me about my superpower now? Amy. I feel like you already asked yourself about it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I feel like I should say something different. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I really do want to know what yes. is your superpower today and how did you acquire it so last time I was on the show I said my superpower was like I was really good at dealing with suffering like emotional pain which is true but I also just realized that I'm really good at like search algorithms and I don't mean like you know like depth first or or that kind of search algorithm. I mean, like something is lost in a house. How do you find it? I'm really good at knowing where I should look to find a thing. I don't know how I acquired that power exactly, (laughs) but it's super useful. So how do you find something? What's your your logic behind it? That does sound useful. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I think something to do with like pretty good like visual memory and like sense good visual scanning like I'm, I'm good at like finding you know like foraging for mushrooms not that I, I don't because I don't want to like accidentally die by eating a mushroom that I misidentify but I'm good at but if seeing you wanted them you could find them yeah but I'm good at seeing little things or like recognizing landmarks and so I don't know like yesterday my partner was like where's the chicken broth and I'm like um, start your search looking on all the high cabinets in the kitchen and begin with the cabinets above the seltzer maker. So, you know, it's a different algorithm for everything, right? Your chicken broth might be expired. No, I just, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Anything in my house that's up that high is probably expired. <laughs> Well, I have, like, I have to make really good use of my shelf space because I've got, like, six months of food in the house because I'm, like, one of those pandemic weirdos. And, you know, it's not – there's just not a lot of storage space, so. Okay, okay. I've heard – somebody told me the other day that this is also a a property that they've seen in senior developers is that as they're reading code, they just note things that, huh, that's interesting, and then – Two weeks later, it's, why is it doing this? And they are like, hmm, you know, I saw this conditional in a class over here. You might want to look there. That's interesting. Yeah, I do think, or like when I think about like my work as a manager, it's been like a pretty long time since I've I've written code, even non-professionally or unprofessionally, I guess, but um, <laughs> That ability to kind of just like remember like, oh, I think I heard someone over there talking about that. Why don't you go ask them or like kind of making those connections. Connections. Would would you call finding things in code also spatial awareness? Because I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think I might. Yeah, maybe. I think it's visual, actually, because I think about like, how do you like spell a word, right? Like, I spell a word by closing my eyes and seeing it. So that's like, it's just like, it's a visual memory of the word. So I think that, like, remembering, like, where you saw a conditional or, like, you know, like, I, like, I have a lot of books and they're, like, I, like, leave highlights in them. And, like, where did I leave a book on the bookcase? That's, like, visual memory. And I think it's the same for, like, 
code too, but I, I'm just speculating. I have one trick that helps with being able to find things around the house. And it's whenever I can't find something and I struggle, when I do find it, I move it to the first place I looked. Oh, that's really smart. That makes a ton of sense. And probably would work with code too, right? Yeah. If there's like something like, why is this here? Well, where did you look for it first? Can we move it there? Yeah, either that or at least if, if we can't have it in all the places we need it, we can put a comment or a, yeah. a clue. Yeah, a little breadcrumb. <laughs> Amy, we hear you know something about toxic masculinity. I think this originally came up in conversation with Jamie when I was talking about when we were talking a few months ago about hierarchies, hierarchies in engineering roles, right? So what is considered a real engineer versus Mm -hmm. what is considered like not real engineering, you know, and the way that plays out all across sort of software and tech generally. So, okay, most masculine kernel hacker security folks. And of course, then you, you know, like you, you like hear about all the, the incredibly toxic ways that plays out in those engineering subcultures. And then, you know, the lower down the stack you are, the more manly. And then the more you're sort of writing code rather than talking to people, you know, front end is, you know, somehow supposed to be less technical than other but things. But it's so I, much I, harder. I know. I know. I just... <laughs> <laughs> um, and confirm. Uh, yeah, I, so that's why I, I didn't do much front end when I was writing code because I really wasn't very good at it and it was very hard and frustrating. You know, and even like the sort of, you know, the way that people think about quality engineering as, you know, being like different. I saw like an argument, argument is maybe too strong a word, but it was something, I think I put the the tweet thread in that giant email of junk I sent to you all, which was just like two different security people talking about which of their types of security was more technical. (laughs) And like, I don't, I didn't understand any of the details of like which, what their types of security were, but I was like, do y'all even know what you mean? Like, is there any content to that word at all technical. at this point? Technical, you know, like I should like, you know, I should have, I meant to like look up, like what is the dictionary definition of technical, but like plenty of things have like, you know, a body of knowledge that you have to master and techniques that you have to use to accomplish a goal. <laughs> and yet some of those things are called technical and some of those things are called not technical or not masculine enough. <laughs> so, they get broken into hard and soft. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think some of the hardest things that I have done in my career as a software engineer are having like really challenging conversations about feedback and how people's actions are impacting other people and suggestions about how they could change those actions to have a better impact on other people. That is really hard to do. And it also it's it's very emotionally hard. It doesn't feel good. to do it. 
but it's, you know, somehow considered a soft skill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Soft, like squishy. Like yeah. it's hard to measure. It's hard to know you're doing it right. And it's what's kind of the same with front end. It's harder to know you're doing it right because it's at some level you have to look at it and look at it in 18 different browsers and 18 different screen sizes. And maybe, maybe that's part of what people see as technical is they can be sure they're doing it right. That is interesting. Um, there is a right answer and gosh darn it, they're going to get it. But there's not. Like... <laughs> You can still do things a lot of ways, right? I mean, there there are there are like kinds of correctness that we can measure, but really, I mean, those are the puzzles. You can call them the hard technical problems, but the fact that they're technical, that they're in the computer, which makes them reproducible and it makes them measurable, and you can reason about them using symbolic logic, that makes them easier. Yeah, there's attractability there when you can reduce them to those terms. Yeah. And and not everyone can uh, do that symbolic logic and think through that stuff. It's not easy naturally, necessarily. So respect to be able to do it. But the power of a software developer is connecting that way of talking to computers to ways of talking to humans. Yes, and that, again, is is considered a soft skill that is not necessarily worth mastering. I mean, I, I don't want to go on this kind of, oh, all engineers, you know, are, you know, no engineers understand this. And, you know, certainly know a lot of engineers who do. Yeah, sure. And yet there are still ways that I see this. It continues to have, I think, a huge impact on the industry as a whole and on kind of what people's sort of expectations of what is expected of them as engineers and sort of the engineering cultures that they're in and how they expect to be compensated and kind of what they think they can get away with or where they want to devote their energies to learning more about. Yeah, at work the other day, we were talking about like possible ways to measure skill advancement. And some of the ways we were talking about were, okay, if we want to measure whether people are getting better at writing secure code, I mean, on one hand, we can look at static analysis that we put in the build process and we can look at numbers there. But how do you measure whether people understand the aspects of secure code that are not amenable to static analysis? Like, are they sending the right pieces of data to the right places? You have to know the data to understand that. And I was thinking, oh, we could ask them to tell a story about a time they noticed a security problem and fixed it. And if they post that, like in the public Slack channel, internal Slack channel, then one, people around the company could learn from that. And two, we could give them points as this would demonstrate understanding and it demonstrates like actual helping. And I'm picturing, I'm picturing the engineers being like, what? I have to do social activities. I should be measured on my technical skills. But the fact it's the social aspect of being human that gives those technical skills value, or at the very least, drastically increases their value uh, to the organization as a whole. But, but I can, I can anticipate engineers not wanting to be measured. They don't want to go into management. They want an individual contributor track where it's just about continuing to solve puzzles. 
Yeah. It's funny the way the way you said, tell a story about a time. I just got off a phone screen and when I do phone screens, they're mostly like behavioral interviewing question. Tell me about a time when you had to X, what did you do? What was the outcome? And you do that because instead of asking, how do you feel or what's your theory of you're asking someone to like articulate the story of a time they actually put whatever theory that was into practice (laughs) and what happened, right? Because it's very, everybody's going to say, oh yes, I love to collaborate. (laughs) When you ask, tell me about a time that you had a disagreement with someone on your team or you were having problems with someone on your team, what, what was that disagreement? How did you go about trying to resolve it and what was the outcome? Then it's exactly that. The storytelling part of it shows that they actually sort of can walk that walk, I guess. Or gives at least, hopefully, a greater level of confidence of that. More signal is what I meant to say. IC versus manager track, I think, was the other thing that I, mm. thread that I wanted to pull out there. It's super important, I think, to have those two different tracks because not everybody is going to get their dopamine hits off of doing management work, especially like, um, like for me, that's my whole job is management work. So if I need to get those quick, li- like, you know, like folks who want to get those quick little, I'd shipped something hit, they either have to be able to, when you move from IC to manager, at some point, you have to get your dopamine hit somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if, if that doesn't work for you, then you're not going to be happy doing the management work. That's a totally separate issue from whether you like can develop the skills to do that, to, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I find it ironic that the individual contributor track is named individual contributor. And yet, um, at least when I was at Stripe, but, but I think generally when you look at the higher levels, they're about having influence and impact wider and wider in the organization, all of which are social. Yeah, 100%. And that's as it should be. Because yes, it's not that there's no use ever for a super senior person who really just wants to sit in a corner and not have to interact. But I think there are a lot fewer kinds of it's. So I don't want to say there's like never a use for that sort of role. But the vast majority of like product engineers as they grow as I see is, yeah, you have an idea for an important new re-architecture. You need to, you know, pitch that. You need to get people to, you know, sort of understand why you want to make that choice and what are the trade-offs and that's, you know, and if you can't get people on board with that then your project is not going to be successful. (laughs) And obviously, like, you know, part of management is is helping to do that, right? Like, I work with senior ICs and tech leads, you know, all the time to sort of help support that kind of mobilizing of cross-team, cross-engineer, just mobilizing those connections to get something done, right? So that everybody can move in the same direction that some group of people has agreed is a good direction to move in. Right. If you want to move the code in a direction, you have to move the people. Yeah, precisely. And then the other thing is, is that a healthy org, I think, has a mix of people at different levels of, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of experience. Mm -hmm. And so you need your senior folks to, to be good mentors. And maybe different senior folks are good mentors at different 
levels. Like everybody's an individual and everybody has like a, like a different set of things that they're going to have their maximum impact in that particular org with that particular other group of people that they're working with. And that's kind of unique to each person. So one of the things I, I love about management is h- sort of helping people figure out like, all right, well, at this moment in time, given what you love and what you're best at and what we need, here's a suggestion for your maximum place of maximum impact right now. And so maybe circling back, maybe mentoring isn't that for everybody. And then maybe mentoring is a lot of that for particular people who are really good at that and really like that's their sweet spot. But generally speaking, yes, the more as senior ICs also need to have these so-called soft people skills to deliver, you know, a product that people will pay money for. Right. So we don't see soft skills as difficult or important or valued. We want the technical stuff. And that technical stuff is masculine. Typically coded masculine. Yes. Yeah. Or Ingressive, as Eugenia Chang would say. Ooh, ingressive. I do not know that word. Okay. Well, this is an important thing to talk about because Eugenia Chang's book just came out. It's called X plus Y, something, 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 gender. Like a, using a mathematician math- rethinks gender or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Eugenia Chang is a, a mathematician. Okay. And I met her at the Empire Elixir Conference. She was on Greater Than Code. I think it's episode 82. And she has these terms, ingressive and congressive, that you can often substitute for masculine and feminine in our discourse. They're not inherently gendered, but yet in our culture, it kind of fits that way. Ingressive is advancing yourself, is pushing toward your own purposes within a group or in opposition to a group. And congressive is advancing the group, is working toward the betterment of the group not just yourself. Uh, So when you are moving a division forward or a whole software team forward, uh, you have to be congressive with that. You have to move the people and the code together. Whereas if, if it's about closing the most tickets or being the most technical, that's very ingressive. It's about you. Maybe it's going to move something forward that also helps the company, but it's, it's individual. That makes sense and is interesting. And I also want to read that book. Just going to add that to the very large, the hardcover. Okay. large pile of books <laughs> in my bed right now. I am interested in hearing more about ways that toxic masculinity shows up in technical discourse or in, in the technical workplace. Um, there I go using that term technical. But what are the, some ways that it shows up? that I, I might not look look for or be uh, aware of because it's just in the water. So another way to ask that, I, you know, I know that, that you're involved in a lot of uh, hiring decisions. And I'm curious, like, what are some of the yellow flags or red flags that somebody might come in thinking, oh, this is, a, th- this is a, an ascent, and you recognize that as, okay, this could be something toxic. An ass- asset? Asset, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sure. So, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, when you talk to people, a lot of them are coming out of orgs that are very like driven by the measurement of individual contributions. So sometimes you'll see that in 
I, I once had someone apologize for taking, you know, for saying that he took a couple days to help a new engineer get up to speed on, you know, like to onboard basically. And, you know, this idea that asking for help or offering or being very generous with assistance or sometimes sort of a subtle sense that what you're doing when you're working on your own thing is your real work and anything else is not your real work. So I spend a lot of time emphasizing the other pieces of work that I consider to be real work, you know, helping in hiring, mentoring, you know, we have a, a front end guild at Wistia. So the folks who are running the front end guild and, you know, taking those notes and organizing those meetings and giving those presentations and facilitating those conversations, that's all real work. Mm -hmm. And reviewing other people's PRs or pairing with someone, you know, that all of those kinds of things are real work. And even I think in really, you know, healthy workplace cultures, there's still like this sort of anxiety in the back of people's heads that that really, you know, and I think especially based on kind of what their prior experience has been. I like to say that everybody comes into an org carrying like the baggage of whatever they just came out of and what their prior experiences have been. And so that one of my jobs as a manager is to like help people feel safe enough to like understand what that baggage is and be able to kind of let it go. So part of them working in your organization is you have to get them to stop working in every previous organization. Yes. Well, recognizing that for a lot of reasons, you know, I mean, a lot of us have baggage that's really hard to let go because of the things that have happened to us in the past. There's some baggage that's hard to let go. And the best you can do is say, all right, I know I have this baggage. Let me look in this moment, am I seeing what's in front of me through the lens of the baggage? And is that fair and reality? Or is it the baggage? I, I mean, it's the same in personal relationships, right? <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. am, am I bringing, you know, this baggage from this prior friendship into this new friendship where it's not, you know, where it's, it's not relevant? Nobody lets go of the baggage of the entire sort of technical culture and all of their workplace. Uh, again, I use technical like that. But the entire culture around software engineering and tech companies, nobody is able to let go of that baggage entirely, right? So you have to understand that. that and, and part of that baggage is the sort of toxic masculinity that most of us have experienced or been part of for, you know, I've been in tech now since 1999, I think is when I f first took my first programming class. So, you know, that's a, that's a long time with a lot of, a lot of stuff that builds up. And what I'm finding now at this point in my career, that's been really, I think, accelerated for me in the last couple of years it's funny, the first talk I gave when I met you, Avdi, um, Jamie, you might have been there. I don't recall. It was at that... Buffalo. Code, yeah, Buffalo Code Days. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I was there. That was the first talk I ever gave at a tech conference. And I had a whole slide that just said patriarchy on it. And I was 
I was completely terrified to give that talk because I'm like, I'm going to stand up in front of a bunch of engineers and say the word patriarchy, which is not something that I had kind of been shooting my mouth off about in public as a director of engineering or as an IC before that for my entire career. So that was the first time that I even like maybe suggested that there could possibly be, um, which is absurd to me looking back. And then since that moment and, you know, just accelerating over the last couple of years, really, you know, speaking up more and more for just even like small unintended ways that people in the industry are kind of sticking in those kinds of patterns. I say unimportant in quotes, I guess, because those things can feel very, yeah, I mean, you know, we're starting to talk about microaggressions here and, you know, frequently, you know, microaggressions that other people are, are not aware of and calling those out more and also recognizing that while I'm super good at calling those out on sort of the the gender axis I have had to do and have a long way to go on being able to to call those out on other axes like race. One thing I think that's interesting that I think you've been like very kind of getting at is that toxic masculinity is something that's like pretty pervasive and insidious and you have to like kind of unlearn it. And I think that this stuff that we're talking about with tech is like also something you have to kind of like make a point to unlearn and like everyone keeps using the word technical and then being like, there, I did it because it's like (laughs) you have to unlearn it. And so I guess I'm wondering like, how do you start doing that? To the extent that I have begun to unlearn some of it, it's an obsessive level of self-questioning or like (laughs) self-interrogation. And I, I just by no means want to hold myself up as I'm so good at this or, you know, I, I'm, I'm not missing, you know, I, this is, it's all a journey. Is it like the baggage thing? You mentioned that when you get an experienced engineer and that experience comes with baggage, these things aren't separable. And then you have to ask them when they see something, are they seeing what's in front of them or the baggage? It's like that. Yeah. Some of it is certainly like having the gift of feedback, right? And so being able to receive feedback from others about things, which sucks. It hurts. I love feedback, but I don't like how it makes me feel. It's it's painful. <laughs> like, you know, having that willingness to just be like, oh, I made this judgment. Are there reasons that like, or I said this thing, what are some possible reasons that I did that or behaved in that way? And which of those are, are relevant to this moment at hand and which of those aren't. I'm trying to think of like, I, I, I want to give like some concrete examples. And I feel like I'm like just about to, well, okay, so tell me about a time when. <laughs> 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 and I want to tell you 
about a time when, and, and, and sometimes this does happen in interviews too. You put people on a spot and they're like, oh, oh gosh, I know I have like a bunch of these stories, but I just can't think of one. Right. And mm-hmm. then, then you have to like correct for like, how anxious is this person likely to be in this context? And is there a way that I can help them feel more relaxed so that it's just easier for them to think like, you know, I'm, I, I don't appear on podcasts frequently. So my anxiety is like higher than usual. And so <laughs> that was part of the pr- learning process for me is just recognizing that some people are baseline a lot more anxious than I am in the context that I'm used to being in. There are people that do not feel like they belong the way I do. Like I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be at the, in front of this computer writing this code, or I'm supposed to be in front of this microphone. That is not a universal experience. And I think that's, for me, that's part of sort of implicit toxic masculinity in the industry is just that expectation that anybody who belongs there is going to feel like they belong there. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And that's a lot of what I see, like folks who really, you know, want to unlearn that stuff and don't want to contribute but just aren't aware of what they're doing. So for example, you know, if you're a white guy and you're in a room with a bunch of other white guys and you're kind of asking like, you know, pretty like direct questions, like, why did you do this? What about that? What happened here? And all of those folks may feel like completely comfortable with that conversation because it doesn't occur to them that you, that, that you're questioning their ability to do their job. Right. And so that conversation can look completely fine. And then you put someone whose experience has been, I don't belong, and they get questions like that. And they're like, oh, wow, this person doesn't trust me. They doubt my ability to do my job. They're hostile. And, you know, a lot of times people just aren't aware that, you know, they just, they haven't seen that. They haven't heard that perspective. You know, they need someone to tell them, hey... (laughs) (laughs) this is what this, you know, could feel like to someone who doesn't look like you. It reminds me of personal relationships. When you're starting a relationship, especially if if it's a potentially romantic relationship, everything you say is about how do you feel about me and then the content. Every conversation is about the relationship first and only secondarily the content. It feels like that in code reviews Two, until you're solid and secure. Yes. Yes. And some people come into an org already super solid and secure. And some people, because of the, their prior experiences, and some people you need to, you know, we're talking about psychological safety, right? So, you know, if you have had the experience of feeling psychologically safe, then, you know, you come into an org and you're like, hey, let's change this. Let's do that. I belong here. I'm comfortable. And if you haven't had that experience or you've had that experience sometimes, but maybe not in your most recent role, then you come in and you're like, I mean, even, you know, when I came to Wissia as a director in, yeah, I spent like my first few months being like, well, I don't know anything about anything here. Okay. Cause I'm new, but maybe X, right. (laughs) And that, you know, I, I didn't want to, you know, in a new environment, I don't want to trigger anyone's aggressive woman stuff. 
and I, I want to be clear with Sia. I, I love with Sia. It's like a, it's a really great workplace environment coming in new. I, you know, I felt pretty confident about that, but I still, because of my history came in with care. And so you see the different ways that people different come into the org. And like, what I love is when you see someone who hasn't had these past experiences that have gone well for them. And then that moment when you're able to help them realize that this is different and that they they are supported and that they are going to get backed up and they are going to be listened to and like to see them be able to blossom in their role and grow really a lot more quickly than might have been anticipated from just the interview process and that's that's the stuff that warms my heart as an engineering manager We'd like to take a break in the show to let you know that today's show is sponsored by StrongDM. Managing your remote team as they work from home? Managing a gazillion SSH keys, database, passwords, and Kubernetes certs? Meet StrongDM. Manage and audit access to servers, databases, and Kubernetes clusters, no matter where your employees are. With StrongDM, easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access, automate onboarding, offboarding, and moving people within roles. Grant temporary accesses that automatically expires to on-call teams. Admins get full auditability into anything anyone does, when they connect, what queries they run, what commands are typed. It's full visibility into everything. For SSH, RDP, and Kubernetes, that means video replays. For databases, it's a single unified query log across all database management systems. StrongDM is used by companies like Hearst, Peloton, Betterment, Greenhouse, and SoFi to manage access. It's more control and less hassle. Strong DM. Manage and audit remote access to infrastructure. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com SDT. So we've talked a lot about the word technical and like the problems with that, but I think that like an even worse word could be non-technical because like people use that kind of as like a sledgehammer sometimes, it's like an insult to call someone non-technical. And so I think that that's interesting because like, obviously, A, it's not like insulting to like not be a programmer, like that's allowed. Yeah. Yes. But I do think that it's, I do think that it's like sometimes helpful, like when I'm talking to like a manager, or a product manager, like if someone understands code the same way that I do, I talk to them differently because I say things that like we have a shared understanding about. And so I do think it's helpful to like have a distinction, but I wonder how we could make that distinction in a way that's less accusatory than that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it's really an issue of understanding kind of the domains in which people do have expertise and feel comfortable in their expertise. And then separately do have expertise, but for various social reasons, don't feel comfortable in their expertise. (laughs) And then, you know, where people don't have expertise and do need you to share in a in a different way, right? I work with marketers and I don't have any marketing expertise and and they don't necessarily have like a software engineering expertise. So when they're telling me about sort of marketing stuff, they have to explain it to me. I've certainly learned a lot more about marketing since I came to Wisia because our customers are marketers, marketers marketing is very important to our business. 
but that's not my expertise. And so really just respecting one another's expertise, like, you know, even this, you know, I mean, if you want to go even more broader, then let's talk about different types of expertise in tech organizations, this whole division between skilled and unskilled labor, right? All labor is skilled labor. (laughs) You know, I think I remember reading an example about sort of like how the people who clean hotel rooms, right? The number of hotel rooms that they have to clean in a certain amount of time and the number of things that they have to do to like prep a hotel room for a next guest, which I'm sure is like even way more now, right now. But I couldn't go in and do that. (laughs) Like, I would have to learn to do that. So, you know, it's the same with the people who are driving for Uber and Lyft, right? Like, they not only have to master whatever they need to do to be able to drive and deal with customers, but there's all this funky stuff that they have to master about how, like, understanding how those apps are working so that they can... Like whole blogs that I've seen of people just being like, all right, well, Uber just did X. So now we as drivers have to do Y. This is, again, I don't know what jobs people are doing that don't require some expertise. And so I basically go into any conversation or, okay, I will say I aspirationally attempt to enter any conversation with someone, no matter what they do for work, with some expectation that they have expertise that I don't, and that I also have expertise that they don't, and that we are engaged in explaining to one another our various areas of expertise in order to collaborate. Amy, you were talking about that beautiful moment when an engineer realizes that they are valued here, that they are supported. It made me think about yesterday, I took my youngest child to get their first set of glasses, which is always a beautiful moment. And and on the way home, of course, they're like, why are there so many distinct leaves on each tree? (laughs) (laughs) They were like, who even needs to see this clearly? (laughs) Yes, actually, I do remember when that exact moment with my daughter when she she got her glasses and she was like oh <laughs> yeah and it is- this is what it's like when I don't have to constantly strain to decide whether that comment was about me what does it say do I belong here Yes, exactly. And then you're able to devote all of that extra effort suddenly to to doing your work. And (laughs) I mean, like you can see more clearly because you just don't have to use half your brain on do I belong? Yeah. For me, like, you know, so much of, you know, what that first talk that I gave where I talked about patriarchy, right? It was talking about, you know, what I had learned from starting to speak openly about my mental illness and the amount of energy that it would take to cover that up at this point and to to try to pretend that I, I do not experience mental illness I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to function at all in my job, actually, at this point in my career. So like, as I started to shed all of that sort of covering up that I was having to do, right, to be more my authentic self in the workplace, that was just a lot of extra energy that I then was able to devote to my work, which is why I I always talk about how this is like, being able to be your authentic self and feel supported and seen as that person is not this like soft 
not necessary to business thing. It's how people can be their most productive. Right. It's it's how we can really apply all of our mental energies to the job at hand. And software development is hard. It yeah. takes all of our mental energies. Yeah. And something that makes me think of is, is just, there's kind of, I feel like there's a first level of awareness of toxic masculinity issues and a lot of toxicity issues. That's just the awareness of, Oh, some people have a harder time with this than others. So we need to like support them in, in feeling more comfortable in our culture. But then there's a second cult. There's a second level where you start to say, wait a minute, what if our culture could be better instead of like helping people fit into this culture and, you know, lean in. What if the culture could be better for everyone? And that's where, you know, I start looking at things like getting away from strong opinions loosely held, which turns out to be a very toxic, you know, something I learned as a young engineer is like, this is how we do things. And it turns out to be a really toxic pattern where, where the loudest voice in the room often just makes everybody else feel belittled. Right. It's, it it can so often be disputing and conflict just for, you know, for the fun of it, right? You you know, arguing for the fun of it. Well, yeah, some people find arguing for the fun of it fun. And a lot of other people are not ever going to be able to experience that as fun because there's real consequences involved. Right. And it's just so there's so much emotional energy that we don't think about because we don't, you know, part of toxic masculinity, I think, is we don't count emotional energy as a thing. Yeah. Um, Because anger is not an emotion. Right. Anger is not an emotion. That's just how we communicate. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Uh, and and so we burn so much energy on those interactions. Yeah. About, you know, on asserting how right we are. Mm. Avdi, I think that the thing that you said about, you know, sort of supporting people coming into a culture versus also like helping other folks lean out, I guess is that there was a great, you know, someone did like a, it was like a New York Times op-ed that's like, women don't need to lean in more, men need to lean out more. And I really was just that that struck me a lot. I was, that was a while back, but actually the world would be better if people did, uh, you know, like I I spent a lot of time being told, Oh, you know, you should work on your, I'm sorry's or your explanation exclamation points, or don't be so careful. And I'm like, actually, I think that if I'm, I, I, I don't think that's a bad way to be like that sort of social, like extending. Yes, it's congressive, but it does require emotional energy. I just think that it's really interesting once you start noticing the way, like in society, whenever there's an issue, like society really wants to put the onus of fixing it on the people that are like experiencing it in a way that doesn't actually make sense. And once you start noticing that, you notice it everywhere. And that was what struck me when you were talking about this, like, you know, oh, you don't feel valued. Well, like, here is what you have to do to feel valued. Yeah, right. Yeah. You have imposter syndrome. Fix it. Yeah. As I've grown as, a, you know, an engineering manager, I want to use my power for good to the extent that I do have power and privilege at this time in my, you know, one of the reasons I talk about my mental illness is because lots of other people can't, right? I make space. And constantly thinking of the ways that I can make space myself and also help a lot of great folks around me make more space who aren't aware of the ways in which they are not making space, right? Like, hey, offer to schedule the meeting or the lunch or, you know, take Mm -hmm. the notes or just talk less sometimes. (laughs) 
or say, look for opportunities to say, oh, you're right. Thank you. I was wrong. That's really helpful. Good job. Yeah. Uh, because if the the senior engineer in the room says, I was wrong, that gives space for other people to be wrong. And suddenly you're not so grr. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to hear what X person had to say. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Notice, yes. the, notice the person who, who wants to talk. Yes. I use my powers of interrupting sometimes to yeah. say that. Oh, oh. And as a parent, as a parent, it's really powerful to say, oh yeah, good point. Let's go with your suggestion. Oh, that's so hard for me, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I actually, I feel like I, I've, I, I, we haven't talked about parenting a, a, a ton, but I, I feel like I do learn a lot from what I understand of your parenting in terms of being more of a like, yes, and kind of parent rather than a no, but mm-hmm. I try to, I do try to, I'm trying to yes, and more. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I see your painting on the dining room wall. And can we paint on a different wall, too? <laughs> Most <laughs> Almost entirely (laughs) for the rest of the time. How about the basement? Cool. And with that, it's time for reflections. I had a, I had a couple little things that struck me. One was that Amy said, every person has a unique set of ways they can have an impact, the ways they're going to best contribute. And you want, you want a diversity of those, right? You want a lot of people who are able to contribute in different ways. And yet that makes it incredibly hard to define a career path and say, this is what you need to do in order to get ahead, get ahead. And in particular, there's all those ways, like you mentioned, organizing the meetings, giving the presentations, those internal nervous system wiring kind of work. They're not valued nearly as much as sitting in your cube typing. But there's a reason we form a company instead of farming out work to individual contractors. The software hangs together because we hang together. And hanging together is our work. There was something that Avdi said that was really striking to me that I'm going to keep thinking about, about like feeling um, like you belong and like not realizing that like, at first that other people are like having a different experience um, with that. And I think that that makes a lot of sense and is also kind of true from the other side, like feeling like you're struggling to belong and not really like fully occurring to you that other people aren't dealing with that. Um, And I think that the idea of like, being aware of both of those mindsets and how like different people might be in different ones of them is going to be helpful, like as a communication tool, like both ways, which I think is interesting. Mm. Mm. Oh, because if you weren't sure you belonged and you were like, "Ah, why did you do that? Where did that come from? Then it would seem like I, I can imagine that if I didn't feel like a I belonged and I said that it would be because I'm trying to push myself in. I'm trying to show that I know something. Whereas from a place of belonging, it's it's just really, I just really want to know where that came from. Is that accurate, Jamie? Or maybe maybe I missed it. I think what I understood Jamie to be saying was that like the folks who for whatever reason, in whatever context, do feel that they belong, don't have a real sense of what the experience is like from the other side. 
nor do the people who don't feel like they belong understand what it feels like to just, oh, obviously I belong here. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that um, mindset like will lead people to communicate differently in a way that like if I understand why that is why they're communicating differently gives me like a better insight into like what they really mean because I think you can say things that are like frustrating or hurtful to someone and you totally didn't mean it that way but like I have interpreted it that way and like I don't think the onus is totally on me to like interpret I think it's also on you to communicate but like if I understand where you're coming from I might be able to say oh so-and-so said this to me and I found it hurtful, but like, I can tell that that's not what they meant. You know what I mean? Yes. I I just had an, another thought, which I don't know is a reflection. It might be like a whole other like <laughs> episode, but it was about, yeah, the, the onus being on the person that I, I think this is, maybe this is my reflection, that the onus really should mostly be on the people who do have the power and privilege in any conversation to be doing most of the work to be aware of that and be thinking, how is my power and my privilege affecting this other person's interpretation of what I'm saying? What might they be seeing that I am not seeing? And how can I help them feel comfortable enough to even be in a position to be able to tell me that, right? which is the piece that is necessary because like, I know there's lots of like, like I'm really good at picking up on toxic masculinity. Like I have a long way to go of picking up racial microaggressions, right? Like I'm white. So like the onus is on me, like, all right, well, what is, you know, like checking my privilege basically. Like, and so that's like the, the burden that that is the burden that we should to the extent that we have power and privilege in the world is that we should have and should carry that's appropriate amy this was like a really amazing conversation i think that like we even in all this time we we talked about so many great things and there's so much more that we can still discuss but i want to thank you personally for coming on the show i think you know i really appreciate you coming on and talking about this kind of stuff with us so Thank you so much for having me. I just, I, it's, it's, I love talking about things like this. Um, so I was really excited uh, to be invited and thanks a lot. Thank you. And for any of our listeners who want to kind of participate in these kind of conversations as they're ongoing, we do have a Slack community. Um, You can donate to our Patreon. If you donate even a dollar, you'll get a invite to the Slack community. And in fact, we are still doing um, which a thing we've been doing all through kind of the pandemic season, which is that if you can't afford to donate to us, you can just ask one of us directly for an invite and we'll bring you in and we have a job board and we have good conversations and a cool community. We'll see you all next time for episode 200. Woo-hoo! 200. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye y'all.